Hello, this is John Mangini, Vice President of Marketing with the New Jersey Bankers Association. Welcome to the New Jersey Banker Podcast. Today, our President and CEO, Mike Afuso, sits down with Dr. Lindsay Piesa, Chief Economist for Stiefel Financial, to discuss addressing the national debt, artificial intelligence's impact on the business landscape and labor market, the economic impact of this year's elections, and more. Thanks, John. Thank you again to my special guest, Dr. Lindsay Piesa. Chief Economist, Stiefel Financial. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Piez is one of the keynote speakers at our Economic Leadership Forum, which is scheduled for March 7th at the Palace at Somerset. For more information, visit njbankers.com. Lindsay, Dr. Piezza, a recent PwC survey has found that only 17% of the executives surveyed still anticipate a recession in the next six months. And this is down from 35% last year. What do you think is contributing to this new level of confidence? Well, there, there is a growing level of confidence that we're able to avoid a recession. But the outlook is still less than rosy. I would say given the challenges, the barriers, all of the expected volatility, all the expected uncertainty in the coming months, broad-based growth will expectedly weaken. That, that's, that's the bad news. But growth is likely to remain positive. I, I think that's the good news, or at least the part of the equation that seems to be boosting confidence, as you suggest. So growth continues to slow, yes, but it likely stops short of a technical recession. So consumers are still spending, businesses are still investing, but both show heightened signs of fatigue and they're losing significant momentum, at least from the third quarter's outsized rise. So growth is likely to slow to less than half the pace that we saw in the third quarter as we await the, the final read for 2023 before slowing, I would suspect, further into 2024 with an average annual growth rate around 1.7%. Again, positive, fueling that confidence that we are able to avoid a recession, but well below the lower bound or the bare minimum that you should expect for a developed economy. It's, it, it's really interesting, though, because if you take it, and, and most of my listeners know, um, I look at things uh, often through the political lens, 17% uh, surveyed anticipate a recession. That means 83% do not. And uh, that's, that's really... Uh, that's really substantial. And uh, and to see that the economy seems to be uh, slowing, but but not uh, dropping off a cliff. Um, certainly, it's it's interesting news considering the uh, what we anticipate the politics to be of 2024. Probably touch on that a little bit later. Um, but what you see now in, in Washington, D.C. is a uh, a fight uh, often um, as as spending bills come up about the national debt, deficit spending, and, and where to go from here. So does the national debt really matter? Well, I would say the short answer is yes, it, it does matter. And it's beginning to matter, I would say, more and more. You know, we did have somewhat of a wake-up call earlier in 2023, if you remember. We saw the 10-year rising to over 5% amid the concerns of the bloated government's balance sheet. But then we had the prospects of the Fed once again easing, the market anticipating rate cuts uh, near term. So all of a sudden concerns of bloated government balance sheets have, at least for now, fallen to the wayside. 
But going forward with this ongoing massive spending, I mean, we see the country's debt level up over 34 trillion. And with the federal deficit as a percent of GDP currently at five and a half percent and projected to rise to over seven percent by the end of the next decade. Well, with this comes sizable debt issuance. As we know, debt begets more debt and potentially higher rates then to well, to entice buyers into the market to buy that debt. So these bloated deficits matter because they're going to continue to shape expectations for higher longer-term rates, not to mention complicate the Fed's pathway. And I, I, th I would say leave the U.S. increasingly more vulnerable to further inflation and or more sizable decline in future growth. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that. Um... I've I've spoken with with one economist from uh, one of our member banks, a a, uh, a systemically important member bank, and um, his theory was as long as the United States has growth, it's not a problem. But it's um, you know to me when you look at the numbers, and again I I look at this as as somebody that that operates in government and politics, our tax policy and our spending policies have been out of line since the year two thousand. We uh, as a as a nation, we spend a dollar and we tax 81 cents. So if you're on the right, you'll say we have a spending problem. If you're on the left, we'll say we have a tax problem. But at the end of the day, there's a gap and it's a significant gap. So what concrete steps should be taken to uh, really address this question of the year over year deficit and the piling on of the national debt? Well, it's hard to say in terms of steps. I'm not optimistic that there's much that can be done, at least in the near term. I don't think there is an appetite for conservative fiscal policy on either side of the aisle, particularly as we enter what's likely to be a very fierce or contentious election cycle. Nor do I think the American people appear to be in any way in support of addressing those longer term growing government balance sheets. They're not in any position to support austerity because remember, household balance sheets are still resilient at this point, but they are facing an uncertain outlook and households are feeling the burden of elevated inflation themselves. So right now, I don't think there's any steps that will or, or can be taken to address this near term. Such such an interesting you know, nexus between politics and economics. And, um, you know, if you look at the, stat, the statistics on uh, Social Security and when benefits will have to be curtailed, um, you know, it used to be something far, far off. And now it's getting closer and closer. And the amount of folks that, that uh, rely on Social Security as their main form of income in retirement it's going to be really sticky for them because, um, you know, as, as you said, with household balance sheet shrinking, um, they're they're one of their key sources of income um, will shrink without uh, the government actually taking some steps to uh, to fix it. So uh, it's I, I tend to agree with you, but uh, I'm sorry that I do. Um, so with, with so many factors like this impacting how people view the economy. How do we really get a clear picture of how the economy is performing? I don't think you can get a clear picture. Uh, you, you certainly can't get a perfect picture. We have so many different factors moving in various directions. 
But I, I think when we're looking out to 2024 and we're trying to gauge the directional momentum of the economy, because that's really as much as we can do, is so much of the economy's momentum is going to be predicated on, I would say, understanding three main factors, the consumer, inflation, and we talked about it a little bit, these tough policy decisions that are going to have to be made by our monetary and fiscal policy leaders. Now, up until now, while the consumer has proven resilient, uh, a more appreciable erosion of spending, as some of these temporary funding supports fade, this could result in a more precipitous decline in broad-based activity and really slow the underlying momentum of the economy. Or turning to inflation, th this recent downtrend has been very welcomed, but should the disinflationary improvements slow or worse, reverse course, we could see a very unexpected response from the Fed and that could undermine growth and, and certainly undermine expectations that the market has for these easier conditions in nearer term. And of course, as we talk about the election more and more, any fiscal efforts, any further fiscal efforts, I should say, to artificially boost consumers or businesses to, to soften a near-term downturn or slowdown as we enter this very fierce election cycle, this could leave the U.S. economy on maybe temporary firmer footing. But looking out beyond the near term, this would make us even more vulnerable to higher inflation, higher levels of debt, and or a more sizable decline of future growth. So the picture is very muddy to say the least as we look out, but again, trying to gauge that directional momentum, it's all about understanding policy, the consumer and inflation. That's, that's, that's uh, there's a lot of moving parts to that. Um, and it's, it's, it's gonna be terrifically interesting the way it, the way it pans out, but it appears, um, you know, at least to me as a as a casual observer, that um, we will do anything as people, as the body politic, uh, to avoid pain, and uh, you see that for the past twenty four years with with uh, our our fiscal and economic policies, and um, you know, I just I I can't imagine. It just seems to me that common sense is going to say those chickens are going to come home someday. They will come home to roost. Um, but, but looking towards the future, because sometimes you have um, new events, new changes, new technologies that create economic changes that are, are totally unforeseen. And artificial intelligence might be that type of, um, of, of paradigm changer. So... Right now, AI seems like something that everybody's exploring right now. How do you think it's going to shape the economy through its impact on the business landscape and the labor market? Well, taking a step back, businesses right now are continuing to struggle under the weight of elevated costs, higher prices, uh, the cost of everything from parts, materials, rents, and of course, labor. And they're still facing this somewhat limited ability to pass on these rising costs to the end consumer without a risk of losing market share. So what are businesses to do? Some corporations have already announced sizable layoffs or, or even hiring freezes. Others, particularly small businesses, have started to slow or stall investments. Others have pushed for alternatives to help offset these rising costs. 
particularly the rising cost of labor as an input. And this is where we see businesses increasingly turning to technology, as you suggest, with the majority of companies reporting that positions have already been replaced by AI. And in fact, we see even more businesses reporting plans to further replace workers as a result of AI or the adoption of AI over the next 12 to 18 months. So in many cases for businesses, technology, automation, AI, this will be a cost cutting lifeline as the economy continues to lose momentum. Still positive again, but lose momentum. But there are a lot of risks. There's a lot of risks to adoption in terms of security, health, and of course, more directly, there's a risk to the labor market. Right now, the, a lot of research, research shows that AI could potentially expose 300 million full-time jobs around the world. And when we look at the occupations that are most at risk of being replaced, these are occupations in finance, medicine, legal activities. So there's a lot of vulnerable sectors of the labor market as we look out to technology and AI, even as businesses continue to move at full speed down the avenue, uh, equally willing to adopt these new measures. Such an, an interesting um, technology as it's, as it's evolving. And I can't help but think that, you know, 30 years ago, um, we talked about what is what will be the effect of opening trade to places like China? And, and I'd like to talk about the election a little bit. But but what would be the effect of NAFTA? What would be the effect of opening trade? And there was always this discussion back and forth over what would be the effect of it on American workers. And the thought was that American workers would be able to adapt and the American um ingenuity, entrepreneurship, um, and, and business would, would adapt, and that everything would end up just fine, that we would be able to outsource jobs to other countries and uh, remain a, an industrial leader. Um, it seems that the thesis has been incorrect. Um, you see right now um, President Trump uh, doing quite well in areas that have been affected by um, trade uh, relations and, and, and vast amounts of trade with China and with other, other countries. Um, how do you see the election impacting the economy and potentially the economy impacting the election? Oh, goodness. This is a country already fiercely divided by politics. And so... I think broadly speaking, the American populace, the economy is, is going to feel salt poured on an open wound, particularly amid the prospects of uh, what's well, increasingly looking like a rematch between former President Trump and current President Biden. I, I think this election is going to reinvigorate supporters and opponents alike, and this is going to freshly fuel that, that visceral reaction and commentary that if you remember, this this really wreaked havoc on, I think, our ability for our political leaders to communicate effectively and, and frankly, do their job. But it also inflicted a lot of destruction on personal and work relationships and mental well-being, eroding confidence, increasing volatility in the marketplace. 
So th there's a lot of potential negative consequences as we enter into this. Uh, I keep using the word fierce. That there's there's really no better descriptor for that. This is going to be a very intense election cycle. And I would just add that both candidates come with sizable baggage. But this is going to be a race, a very close race, and I think a, a race that's too close to call if we do see that second round Biden-Trump matchup. I think it'll most likely be won by the first side that's willing to offer a fresh alternative. But along the way, tensions, I, I think, are going to be ratcheted up towards year end as the fringe on both parties make claims that are less desirable to the markets, less desirable to the average American. And likely causing, as I mentioned, increased volatility, a decline in confidence, and maybe even a stalemate in terms of overall activity until the outcome is delivered. I, I think I agree with you. I think, unfortunately, we have um, hyper-partisanship and the fringes of the parties um, do not necessarily, they, they, they do not work well or, or, or the fringes are not able to um, work well with the center parts of the parties, and they actually have an incentive to make everything grind to a halt if you're on the fringe, um, because it's better to complain for them to govern, because governing requires compromise and requires you not to get everything that you want. And if you're on the fringe, you could bellyache and say, I could deliver 100% of what I want. Just get me in power when you full well know that the fringe will never be able to do that. Um, such a such a difficult um, situation that we're faced. And I know that the first um, question that will um, come up for the uh, for whoever is elected president, whether it's President Biden reelected or President Trump uh, elected for a second time, will be um, revisiting. The, uh, the tax policy of President Trump as some of those individual tax uh, cuts expire. So it will be very uh, it'll be very interesting to see how that all um, develops in uh, 2025. But but let's stick with 2024. If you had one piece of advice for the business community and particularly for banks regarding the 2024 economic outlook, what would it be? I would have to say oppose complacency and challenge consensus. And I'll just put this in the context of market expectations. Investors up to this point have really been led by an experiential bias where the quote normal world or the only world known is the low yields that we experienced in the in the decades prior to COVID. And, and because of that, the market has been preemptively calling for an end to rate hikes for the better part of the past two years and pricing in now rate cuts that have yet to come to fruition. So as we look out further into the new year, just keep in mind as we continue to move forward in, in these very challenging and uncertain times, the market, investors, they've been wrong before, each time reminded of the old adage, don't fight the Fed. That's that's great. That's great advice. Um, I guess in 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 a, just as a final question, um, because you talked about that that bias, um, we've seen rates come down for the past twenty five years, and for the most part, and we have seen um, profligate federal spending 
um, growth of, of, of debt, growth of, of deficits. Um, are we just essentially as an economy addicted to cocaine, the cocaine of the fake stimulus of low rates and the fake stimulus of, of, uh, of deficit spending? Well, I, I do think that I do think that the economy is consistently optimistic that things won't change. We'll continue to be able to finance government spending indefinitely. And as I mentioned, we did have that earlier wake up call in 2023, but it was very short lived. But if we simply go back to the, the principle of supply and demand, this would suggest that as we continue to grow these deficits, as we continue to massively spend beyond our means, well, this is going to lead to eventually a sustained reduction in price and higher yields. And theoretically then get us right back to the conditions that we saw in October with the 10 year potentially moving back up towards 5%. Now, of course, markets do not adhere to theory, clearly. <laughs> because we could have made this argument. We should have been making this argument for years. So the timing for another market realization is, is very unknown. But again, broadly speaking, the reality remains that governments cannot spend indefinitely unchecked. But that remains to be seen when that reality is actually priced into uh, market expectations. It's a very... Uh... We'll see where it goes. We'll see where it goes. I think uh, Reagan's budget guru called it the uh, the price of politics or the triumph of politics. And I think uh, I think that's where we'll be headed. Once again, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Lindsay Piazza, chief economist, Stiefel Financial. And visit njbankers.com for more information on our economic forum. And for the New Jersey Banker podcast, I'm Micah Fuso.